Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rad Talk. Welcome to podcast number 19. Uh, my name is Naaman Joker Anderson, and I'm joined by my fellow host, Joe McNamara. Hi, everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Dr. Amanda Bolston, who discussed her career, experiences of LGBTQ plus patients and healthcare professionals, and her latest venture, Queer and Cancer. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So, we are pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Rachel Moses, who will be discussing her career, experiences through the pandemic, and her work with Medical Aid for Palestine. Hi, Rachel. Hiya. So, Rachel, please could you tell us what your current role is and how, how you got there? Oh, well, this could take some time because I <laughs> technically have got quite a few. If I start with the job that I work in the most, um, so I'm currently head of clinical leadership development at the NHS Leadership Academy, part of the Leadership and Lifelong Learning Team, NHS England and Improvement. Um, I'd and love I to think... see your signature, Rachel. <laughs> I mean, it's so long. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I do actually have three different signature strips for this reason. <laughs> oh. so, um, so, yes, so that I work four days a week in that role. Um, it's based in the NHS Leadership Academy in Leeds and I uh, work with fantastic team of leadership experts um so yes and I've only been in that role about four months so it's quite new I work one day a week as a national clinical speciality advisor for respiratory and that includes a bit of long COVID at the moment as a priority area and I job share that with a chap called um, Dr Mohan Pal Singh who is a GP with a specialist interest in respiratory from the Midlands and he's just amazing and you know, there's there's only a couple of other non-medics, hate that term, but non-medics in these national roles. Um, and it's really important people put themselves forward for it and just sharing it with the GP, especially Mohan. He's a Sikh background. He's working in primary care. I'm an HP, secondary care, great combo. And then I am a consultant respiratory physiotherapist. So at the moment, I am working solely in third sector and charity, voluntary. Um, but from next year, I will be contracted to an NHS provider organisation for um, pr- half a day, day a week. Um, we're still working that out just to make sure I've got that real clinical interface. And is it just the paid jobs you want or is it the, all the other roles as well? Just tell us about all the signatures, I think, and then. <laughs> OK, well, as from yesterday, and I'm actually really proud of this and I'm just coming to terms with saying it out loud, but I am the president of the British Thoracic Society, which is a specialist respiratory organisation, um, but it's internationally recognised, um, mainly for its guidelines and clinical statements but we are a real advocate our whole mission statement is around improving lung health for all and we had a fantastic session on global lung health today um you know a lot of what we do is preventative i know this is very close to both of your hearts especially lung cancers um so yeah um i'm, I'm bts president and that's a term that i'll stay in for a year so really proud of that and I also am the multimedia editor for Thorax BMG. So I was deliberately brought in through the, the editorial team to add a little bit of diversity, um, you know, um, which is a really good thing. They're three um, middle-class white male professors who are incredible, but they really want to improve um, the representation of again non-medics I have to think of a better term than that yeah it's it's always it's... harsh isn't it I had it when I was at Macmillan I had to kind of say I'm a non-medic and it was almost like already you had that superiority complex of going oh I, I'm apologizing because I'm not a medic when yeah. we shouldn't be apologizing at all I know I just can't think of a better like term so yes there's that and I'm currently honorary student president for the Chartered Society Physiotherapist but I'm about to hand over to a wonderful um, person who hasn't been announced yet um, so yeah I think that's probably the main ones to be fair and obviously we work for medical aid for Palestinians um, 
So, yeah. Rachel, that explains why when I was talking to some fellow physio colleagues, they went, how have you got Rachel Moses on your podcast? Because she's far too busy. So I, I fully appreciate now why they, why they said that, because you're doing a lot. How do you fit it all in? Well, sometimes it's a struggle. I'm not that... Everyone thinks I'm really organised, and I am to some extent, but I'm not really. A lot. Of, I mean, look, it's half eight at night here, so yeah, I could probably say the same about you both. You're doing this type of amazing work in your own time late into the evening. So I think, you know, I really struggled with this with students and new grads because when I qualified, and I don't want to be that person in my day, in order to to achieve more and do more you had to put in that extra 10 percent you had to stay late you had to do things Mm -hmm. in your own time and it was that work ethic that I've just grew up with in it tumbleweeds so when you do something and you're successful or you do something and someone's like oh you did a good job there you do something and you, you most importantly you feel great for it because someone else has benefited from it it's then this cycle you get into so for me I'm on this treadmill and I'm okay to stay on it yeah um and I think the moment when I start to feel like things become a chore yeah I get resentful um I do have to say I don't have children and I was doing a podcast with wonderful Tara Humphrey I don't know if you know her um she does a business of healthcare podcast and she said to me after she says why did you get it in so quickly yes you haven't got children and I said because people tend to always ask it oh, and then really? when I say oh I haven't got they said oh how do you how do your children cope with you being so busy and I'm like oh I haven't got any um so yeah so that's why I'm saying it <laughs> and I do think it is a bit easier when you don't especially when you're a woman and you don't have children because I know women that work as hard as me, as equally hard. And then they've got these little ones they're responsible for and they've got to keep alive. And I'm like, how do you do it? Like, you know, I've got dogs. And as long as you feed them, walk them twice a day, give them some treats. That's sorted. Rachel, Naaman and I have both got a dog, though. And my dog is far more hard work than my child. So, uh, so, so, so don't, don't use that as an excuse. The dogs are just as uh, stressful. Oh, bless. Rachel, there's um, something you forgot. I suppose we should be congratulating you on an OBE that you got as well. Um, what were you doing when you found out? <clears throat> well, I'm cringing right now inside. Um... <laughs> I have to I have to actually explain that because I giggled when Naaman asked you the question and people would be like that's really rude you're asking about her OBE and Joe is laughing it's only because previously to starting the podcast Rachel saw the question about the OBE (laughs) and went oh no you can't ask me that (laughs) I think it's an important thing to discuss I think as, as we said before not many allied health professionals get an OBE um so I think it's important to talk about well, that's really nice. And thank you for saying it. And I do genuinely feel blessed and honoured. Um, you know, I am a royalist. I love the royal family. I love the queen. Um, and I, I struggle with that. The more I've learned about history and culture and colonialism. So I do struggle with that. But if I think about the queen, I love the queen. Um, and um, and. I it's a bit of a long story but I was in Preston as a in my consultant respiratory physio role and I had been put forward for an OB in that role that was pre-pandemic um, and that was in the Christmas or the New Year's honours list but because I left Preston quite quickly to join the London um, Covid critical care response effort um predominantly through the London Nightingale um I kind of just left there within it was like 48 hours notice and I never went back because I went then went on to work at the Royal Brompton so it just basically I never got the email they send you an email and they ask and I went through a full yeah they've just not replying so they thought I didn't want it and then um, wow. yeah so then but then and, and I feel god I feel really cringe saying this but then another submission had went in and because they had a different email address for us um 
then they 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 kind of tracked me down and they said look we know you didn't want it the last time and I was like so yeah so I was literally just sat at a computer and you obviously can't tell anyone yeah so it's completely embargoed and you can't even find out who nominated you but I do have an idea um and I'm extremely grateful and I think it's a funny time to accept a Queen's Honour when it's COVID time and yeah. I think it's who everyone deserves one you know you could say ev- I know so many people that are so deserving but there is something around the extra ones that were given out during COVID. I think that was really special. And I think if you know someone that deserves one, get your nomination in. Anyone can nominate. I've nominated people before. So, yeah, uh, that would be my big take-home message. You know, you're absolutely right. More HPs need to be recognised for their incredible efforts. So, Rachel, you mentioned the nightingale and and covid do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of your role through the pandemic yeah so um so very early on in probably just you know really early on december january time when it was coming to light we were probably gonna head into a global pandemic i feel fortunate it's probably the wrong word but i do feel fortunate that i've had previous pandemic training and because I've spent time overseas um, and I've done humanitarian work and obviously I have some military operational experience, um, I started to produce some local guidelines and some local policies about how I would protect my staff. Right. And it wasn't it was mainly physios because of that respiratory physio element, but it was everyone. It was speech and language therapists. It was anyone that was going to be exposed. And very quickly on, I realized that I didn't agree with the Public Health England guidance. So that's right. why I decided to write my own policies. And the director of nursing at the time, um, you know, was very, very supportive of that and was happy to sign those documents off that this is what we were doing for our respiratory staff. So right. that included doctors, nurses, physios. Um, and I'm very grateful of that now because of what we know now about COVID and what we know about the non-ICU patients we had. And that includes F- all of the MDTs, the dietitians, radiographers, ODPs, everyone that was involved. So, yeah, I started bashing these guidelines out and um, putting them on Twitter and said, you know, it's some. It, it was a bit risky to do because some people could have been, that's really crap. Like, what? Yeah. I don't agree with that. But, you know, I just think, well, if you want to use it and plagiarise it, plagiarise yeah. it, change it adapt it however you want if you write a better one crack on and then you put it on twitter um, <laughs> and then um and then if it why you know gone are the days where you want to see someone else's guideline and you email them oh hi i hear you've wrote this fantastic guideline on whatever yeah please can you send us a copy <clears throat> and you literally have to chop off your right arm and put it in a jiffy bag in the post of them to get it back and you're like, why is someone saying how good that guideline is and they've spent three years writing it and then they're not going to share it with someone else? It's yeah. just ridiculous. So I think for me, it was that catalyst of let's share what we know, let's share good practice. And then I got an email from the Australians to say, um, oh, we're writing an international guideline. Do you want to join the team? And these are like really clever people with like loads and loads of letters after the name. And I was like, oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. I mean, I can't even I can't even speak proper, let, let alone these words. Up so I was like, oh, only if you, if you think so. And they were like, yeah, because of this stuff you're putting out there. So I thought, do you know what it is? I've got the practical experience and they've yeah. got that academic knowledge. And... Um, so I joined this international group and we we published a guideline in March 2020, which I think is incredible when I think back. We've, we've just put the review up actually for peer review and for publication. Um, but yeah, so I got involved in that and produced this international guideline. Then at the time in March, as you know, our numbers were really increasing. And then that's when Boris decided that we're going to build these field hospitals, these field ICUs. And then that's when the calls came to say, do you want to come and head up the Nightingale in London? They knew I was moving down there anyway. Um, so, yes, we had a few days to build a field hospital, an ICU. Well, it was a field ICU, about a week. 
And my strategy as a chief HP was to find my clinical leads. Right. And that was all the HPs you'd normally find in intensive care unit, including radiography. And there was a whole imaging department. And Alex um, was our lead radiographer, who was incredible. And each, basically each HP team worked on bringing their own staff in, training their own staff, writing policies, protocols, guidelines, everything and of course then the magic happened so but I have to say that um that it was a pan London response and the only reason those nightingales weren't needed to full capacity was because of the incredible effort of all the doctors nurses HPs scientists everyone that supported those critical care units so yeah that that was my role in COVID wow that's pretty amazing and you say it so, so, so laissez-faire. Oh yeah, I just did this, and I just put it on Twitter. But honestly, Rachel, you definitely deserve that OBE because it is amazing what you've done. So don't sell yourself short at all. It's pretty special, and representing all the AHPs, um, that in itself is always a challenge um, because we know what we can be like when we're trying to work together. I think having a pandemic helped. It definitely brought collaboration and like you said you know sharing something on twitter would you have ordinarily have thought to do that yeah it's interesting isn't it um i i think social media was used to disseminate information like never before and that included educational and professional information and a lot of people had a problem with that because it wasn't the correct route yeah but i honestly thought and this is the very beginning I thought, what are that we've got to use multiple platforms to get this stuff out there, and this is when we started doing some of the podcasts as well. Um, in the study days, it was making everything free and accessible, and I think that's been the real key here. And as a community, so what own professional communities, but what we can learn from each other, and look what happened. Yeah, you know, like if I think about the radiography. A radiographer's response just little things like you know radiographers would come into the red zones with their mobile x-rays and um they wouldn't just do an x-ray and leave they would stay in for four five six hours especially if your surge ICUs that maybe had 70 ventilated patients so chances are someone's going to need an x-ray in that time or if they've been proned or they need a tube check or whatever um and then they'd help with turning and cares and that's you might have the odd radiographer that would do that on a critical care unit but not normally not in my experience and that's no disrespect that's just that just wouldn't be part of their role so it's just how every single HP and the ODPs for me were a critical workforce for, for from an HP perspective that I really don't know how our ICUs especially the surge ICUs would have coped without them because they are airway experts and I think for me you know they're some of the real heroes um, from an HP perspective um, yeah um, I mean talking about Twitter that's how we met Rachel um, I think it's been a common theme on our podcast Joe that <laughs> <laughs> so Joe and I met through Twitter and working through um, action radiotherapy um, but I suppose <clears throat> so Rachel we met at a sort of a BAME um, leaders event that you were hosting. Um, I think I did one event for you in a car park when we were going on holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so, you know, the BTS, uh, the video, so the British Thoracic Society video that's on YouTube from your elect, um, you know, as Joe's already mentioned, um, you're very inclusive and you do kind of include everyone possible in, you know, whoever works hard in the field and behind the scenes, why is equality and diversity and inclusion so important to you? Oh, God, where do I even start? So, it's important to me because I have been on quite a journey with my cultural competence, or I don't even know what to call it. I think it's understanding. And I left the Newcastle Trust. In, which I'd worked for about well it was well over 10 years and I um, I 
was surrounded by people that looked like me, talked like me, acted like me. And I thought this is the way that everyone has to be in order to be successful in their job. And I went to St. George's in Tooting. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's very multicultural and there's a lot of diversity. And I was looking after a diverse team and who were incredible. Like, honestly, I'm still friends with so many people from that team. It was a it was a team that was a little bit broken, that didn't have good leadership because of one thing and another. Great people there, but it was just a bit broken. And I remember doing a big recruitment drive and I realised that everyone I was recruiting was like me, like looked like me, talked like me, acted like me. And I, and I remember vividly not giving this person a job. And it, they they were an Indian girl woman and I was given her the feedback and I just felt so wrong it felt so wrong I felt I'd made the wrong decision and I was just like I was just basically like using excuses as to why I didn't give the job but it's because she didn't she wasn't confident enough she didn't put her points across enough she wasn't is like is excitable and you know like and I just really reflected in any way. I reached out to her and asked if she would help me understand why I hadn't give her that job. And she said, yes. And that's a big thing because I'm like, oh, yeah, I can't have yeah. this job. But will you help us? And she did. And, of course, that was my journey starting by realising that people, particularly from ethnic minorities, in a healthcare system that is prejudiced or discriminates, especially recruitment, that it, that's their life so yeah. she had two options she didn't engage with someone like me who had the power who had the power to say you've got the job or not because that's that's flawed in itself isn't it or she thought I can engage and I can help this person or I don't and the cycle continues yeah. you know and we're still friends to this day but I um I've, I had to realize a lot of uncomfortable truths about myself and about my discrimination and how I discriminated against people. And, you know, I've said this on a number of like public forums now because I'm not afraid of people judging me for that because actually I think in our society, if you haven't been through that as a white, cisgendered, British-born healthcare professional, I would really question whether you understand your own biases because society favors people like me. And you know I'm not from I'm not posh. I'm like from a working class background, you know, but that doesn't that's not the be I'm still white. I'll always have color on my side in this country. So that was the start for me. So I know that was really long, but that's the sole reason it's important to me because I truly understand my own privileges and I never take them for granted every single day yes I've had to work hard yes I've not always been liked in some of my jobs yes I know I leave some of my jobs and I'm not liked but that's not a patch on what other people go through and in my more recent years knowing this when I've reached out to people from um, you know either ethnically diverse LGBTQI plus and my staff that I care for that are living with disabilities I then learn more because I make that effort to go to that person and say tell me your story tell me your experiences tell me what's happened to you and one girl in particular Raz who's the only wheelchair using dietitian in the UK who is amazing but she goes through prejudice and discrimination every single day as a wheelchair user in the health and care service as a, as a member of staff and for me until we get it completely right we all this always has to be our number one priority reducing inequality so equity and belonging and leveling the playing field and I know everyone throws that word around really loosely now but that's what it's about isn't it 
it is about equity leveling the playing field making sure everyone feels like they truly belong and then everything else comes after that we need to get those bits right some of the high level stuff people throw things at it the leadership courses all of this they're really important but unless you have that baseline physiological level where we nurture staff look after staff appreciate that staff have got different um challenges different experiences we can never really move to that next level of the pyramid. And of course, I talk about colleagues, but this is everyone, isn't it? This is everyone. This is um, our patients, our service users, people in society. But yeah, what, what have we got influence over? Well, I've got influence of the people that I lead, the people that I manage and the patients that I look after. And if I can start doing that on a wider scale, hence this was the podcast idea, if I'm if I'm struggling to have these conversations with my staff, if I know people are coming to me saying, how do you even start to have that conversation? How do you re- reach out? Yeah. Then this is why we need to make these conversations public. And I was so grateful to you being one of the panel because I can't have the conversations with myself. And you know, there was a lot of stick at the time. They were like, why are you as the white person holding it? Why are you as the white person having the power? And I said, I'm actually, I'm the one doing the donkey work. I'm the one bringing everyone together. I'm the one that's going to record it, publish it. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. And, you know, um, and this is where it does get a little bit, I think, controversial or tricky because... And it was actually a good friend, Gita, that said this to me. She said, people who need to hear this podcast will probably be more inclined to listen to it because you're on it. Where if it was a whole panel of people from a Black Asian minority ethnic background, disability background, LGBTQR+, they wouldn't maybe be drawn to it as much. And again, that's the uncomfortable truth of where we are right now, I think. Wow. Thank you for sharing. That's quite a lot of info and really, really compassionate, I think, what you said. Yep, I agree. I think having you on was amazing because I think I felt more confident to talk about things. So this is for the previous kind of podcast that we did together. Um, And then another one talking about sort of leadership and stuff, which I did from a car park on a motorway. But (laughs) um, yeah, it's all these problems have always been around. As you've said, you might not have noticed them, but it's the same goes for me, just because I'm from a BME background doesn't mean I haven't discriminated as you said it's that journey again if you want to talk about equality diversity inclusion you do have to look at yourself first you have to think well actually am I doing the right thing I think it was interesting so um, Dr Amanda Balderson what she said when we talked about the NHS badge in the previous podcast that if you wear it you need to be ready for the questions that might come from it especially from patients if there's something we'll disclose to you whether it's to the racism or LGBTQ plus you need to know your stuff. And actually, that exactly as you said, Rachel, and I really appreciate you saying it, that it's about looking at yourself first, knowing, okay, well, what have I done? What can I do to educate myself? Because until I don't know, I can't expect other people to treat me in a different way, if that makes sense. It's definitely something Shireen said as well in the previous <laughs> podcast. And she was saying, actually, it's not for me to go out and educate people. You know, it's not for me to necessarily share all my experiences all the time. It's about people who know that they do discriminate or that they do have prejudice going out and educating themselves and developing their knowledge and experience so that they're able to change their practice and be better for their service users. So I think all of the conversations that we're having about equality, diversity and inclusivity all really nicely fits together and that there's obvious themes. And I really do hope that the listeners do kind of take away what they can do to make changes. It's not about people putting on courses or doing things to educate themselves. People have to take responsibility for themselves. And if they recognise that they are prejudiced for whatever reason, they need to do something about that. They need to educate themselves. They need to go and have the conversations with people and find out why and what they need to do better, what they need to learn. And I think that's so important so important so Rachel you did you did touch on your humanitarian work so tell us what what have you been doing oh so this is honestly so close to my heart so I I was in the military as a British army officer as a physiotherapist a number of years ago and um 
Did you do that straight from uni? What, no, what was your bit, like early career journey? Yeah, so I had a bit of time at the time. Um, it's a little bit complex, but at the time they didn't have, they wanted you to have a bit of experience. So you'd done some rotations then went in. I'd done a very short commission, ended up deployed to Optelic, which was the Iraq um, war, the second war. And um, and after I'd my operational um, placement, um then came came out like I'd finished my um service then and um I can't remember the name of the field hospital the reserve hospital it's in Newcastle and Manchester there's two different ones but yes but that really sparked my interest like in that that wasn't the end of it and um I then joined a humanitarian aid agency specifically around kind of disaster relief at the time because of the skills I'd had and I was battlefield trained so um you know you had certain um skills you could go out to a zone like that and be able to treat um but then it 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 moved on a little bit as I got more qualified and I became more experienced I suppose in my field and I joined a couple of different agencies, but now I'm with Medical Aid for Palestinians, which is a medical charity that obviously works with Palestine, the occupied territories. But um, the main focus of work they do is in Gaza and in Gaza Strip. Obviously, for anyone that knows anything about the history there, they've been imprisoned for well over a decade now. Um, and without getting too political, um, the main reason I'm involved is because there is humans there and there's healthcare professionals there often have the most incredible experience. Like these are PhD educated physiotherapists worked in Australia, America, you know, very intelligent people. And because of the blockade, they can't access, you know, ongoing education. They can't, access any training courses and they have three to four hours of electricity a day so even accessing the internet things are blocked um you know and obviously they have had recent conflict so um when the opportunity came to be part of the charity and actually go to gaza and support them with some respiratory critical care training i took that up and now cut long story short five years on um five or six years on um six years next year i am i've been working as what they call a placement coordinator um, in a voluntary role and we send people out on missions so i can say it now because they're back over the border but we have just sent a breast cancer team out and i know this again will be close to your heart um unfortunately they aren't allowed um therapeutic radiography out there for their breast cancer patients so they have to rely on surgery and some chemotherapy and drug therapy. Um, but a lot of women, unfortunately, die of what would be curative um, cancer treatment here in the UK and other other developed nations. So we've sent a whole team out of there. Um, and with, with a physio for the first time, nurses, surgeons, doctors, and they've been support, they've actually been physically treating um, breast cancer women, but also running an educational event. And this Sunday, we have part two of a women's health um, study day. So we put on online events where we basically upscale healthcare professionals in Gaza through the internet. Obviously, they have to all be in the same place because of their internet and electricity um, map are really good. They hire somewhere. Um, right. And then so but we, we are restarting our face to face missions, which obviously have been on hold for two years. So, um, so yeah, so that's what I do. And it's the most incredible, incredible experience. I mean, the first time I went, I left a little bit of my heart there. So I knew I'd always have to go back and keep picking Aww. it up in little pieces. But, um, but yeah, they're most incredible people. And people say, how would you get into humanitarian work? Well, there's so many different ways. But if you are listening to this as a new grad or someone that's on your career journey and you think, oh, God, I really want to do that at some point, do it sooner than later. Cause you'll meet the love of your life. 
you'll want to buy a house or you'll get a dog or a cat or a guinea pig or whatever <laughs> and it'll just get put off and then you'll get to the right old age of 40 and you think oh my god so yeah if you're thinking about this and you listen to this please please just look at your options and consider it in between that band five six time is a really good time and if you think oh they might not need radiographers or OTs or whoever it is that's listening to this there's lots of organizations that will take healthcare professionals and you yeah. can learn skills like and you know you could do vaccine programs you could do screening programs like there's lots of work going on tb wise and actually you know there's some employers are really good and they'll let you go on secondments and things um so yeah oh rachel it sounds amazing and it's so inspiring i always always wanted to do it and you're absolutely right you meet your husband you have children and to be honest Noah who is my son we have conversations because I have often said that the summer holidays would be the perfect time to go out and go and work and drag him with me and you know when he's a bit older we would love to do that um and we were Naaman and I were at um a advanced practice conference on the weekend and we were actually talking about it as part of the panel that I chaired. And we were saying, you know, therapeutic radiographers, especially of advanced practice consultant posts, they have the knowledge and skills to be able to do loads of public health work. And, you know, in Africa where they don't have screening programs, where they don't have, you know, the, that public health knowledge, what, there absolutely is an opportunity for us to go out and help communities and really make a difference I think it's easy to forget about that sometimes when you're in your bubble of the UK and you've got your nice house and you're warm at night and it's very easy to just think oh I'm not progressing in my career you know why not utilize the global opportunities and really make a difference to to people that don't have what we have and the privileges that we have so it's really inspirational what you've said so thank you i'm loving all the hints and tips for people to consider you're going to make such a difference think of how many ahps you're going to influence via a podcast to go and get involved rachel if they wanted to get in well i suppose in touch with someone to work with you for example for the palestine stuff how would they do that so yeah, we um there's different levels of of involvement. I think I often put a call out for healthcare professionals. It's mainly physios because in Gaza they only have physios as the other. Um, but we we obviously desperately need other professionals out there. But the just Ministry of Health at the moment don't recognise any other professional group. Um, and I often put a call out and just say I'm looking for experienced people who have got these interests. There is like, um, there's other humanitarian aid agencies, you know, you can just Google them. But if anyone did want to reach out to me, I have no problems with signposting people um, as well. But maybe that would be a good podcast for you to do, Yeah. Um, you know, with someone and say, actually, this is how I got into it. I think a lot of people worry about like that pension and paying in and stuff like that. And, you know, for for circumstances, um, that were kind of in my control, but not. I ended up being unemployed this year for about four or five months. And I went and done my voluntary work full time till I got my leadership job. And I was really worried about my pension. And, um, you know, I didn't really need to be. Someone was like, you can have a full break for like nine months and not pay into your NHS pension and it's okay. Yeah. You just need to kind of just make sure you contribute. And then someone said you could do like some kind of bank. And then so really people don't worry about things like that. And, you know, someone said was you could die before you get your pension. And I thought, you know what it is? You're absolutely <laughs> right, I thought. Why am I stressing about it? <laughs> absolutely. I do think, and I've often... I've often said it to students as well you know when they're studying I'm like oh have you thought about financially what you're doing and like I advise my students to get lifetime ISA which lecturers do that like seriously sometimes <laughs> they must just eye roll and I was like right you can start contributing to your mortgage ISA and they're like what are you talking about Joe but nobody ever tells you these things like how positive is it for someone to go do you know what you can take a break it's fine don't panic about it don't let that stop you from going and doing amazing work or aspiring to do something that's outside your comfort zone 
And the fact that you've just said that you had a time of unemployment and your OBE and all of the experience and stuff you've got just goes to show though, doesn't it? And Janice was exactly the same. So we interviewed uh, Janice and John Matthews and she said exactly the same, which was, I've got this amazing fellowship, this amazing opportunity, but I don't yet have another job lined up. So if anyone wants to employ me. But sometimes it is taking those risks, isn't it, for those jobs, those experiences, those roles that you know ultimately you're going to thrive on. And, yes, you might have a period where you are looking for something, but I'm a firm believer of everything happens for a reason. Um, And definitely for everyone that we've spoken to who are in leadership roles, they have had what we would consider a portfolio career where you do have lots of roles, lots of different external experiences. Um, so it's it's good to kind of start piecing that together for people who do have aspirations to do what you've you've done. And that kind of leads me on to the next question, which is Can what... I come back? Can I come yeah, back in there a minute? Sorry. Because I feel like I've just said I had five months unemployed and you've made a really good point because I don't talk about this a lot because um, I'm, I'm still processing it. But I worked in a very, very, you know, it was a very good job. It was a director job. Yeah. And it was a very good salary. We're talking yeah. 80K. And um, their, in a nutshell, their organisational culture and their idea of good leadership values didn't align with mine. Right. and after 10 months I, I wasn't enough to change it yeah. and I am zero tolerant I've come to this stage of my career where I'm zero tolerant of going discrimination yeah. of any form so I had to leave that job and I left it with no job to go to and that was at my stage of my career and for anyone that's listening out there that's in an organization or in a team where you inherently know that their values and their uh, their culture and their their stand on any form of discrimination doesn't align to yours and you try to influence as best you can maybe consider how long you stay there or if it's the right place for you in the old days we were told you would never leave a job you have to stay you know you you've got a gap in your career people why why have you had four months gap why what were you doing in that time you know and our NHS cannot be like that anymore and it should not be like that anymore so for anyone that's listening that that really doubts it or they're in this toxic environment and you're not in a position of enough power to change it there will be someone that wants you with the same values and I'm proof of that so yeah and if anyone needs to talk or wants advice around that please do reach out to me because I've been there done that got the t-shirt oh thank you Rachel and that's that's really nice that you've shared that so thank you for for highlighting that and I'm sure there are people in similar situations so let's hope you don't get too many emails afterwards I don't mind I'd spend all day talking about that if it helped someone so oh thank, thank you. you so what is next for you so you know you're still really young you're doing really well. You're the first non-medic president. You've done an amazing elect speech. Where, what was it you said again in your presidential speech? Well, it was for 45 minutes. Let's get this straight. <laughs> 45 minutes. And I talked about all of the, everyone, all part of MDT. And I talked about quality, diversity, inclusion and belonging. But the one liner that people seem to keep remembering is when I was talking about my six inspirational role models in the name of Sudia, who's in my circle, who's in who's in your circle. He introduced me to the concept. And lovely Shireen's in my circle. She had a little face up there. And Shireen was on top of my other friend dressed as a giant vulva. <laughs> gusset grippers. So she's called Elaine Miller and she's gusset grippers. And she basically is a woman's health physio. And her strapline is she fishes around in fannies for a living. <laughs> and because I was looking at our little face, it's just our little face that sits underneath the clitoral hood. And she's got like, she's got like, a, you know, like the flaps and everything. And you just can't see us when I'm doing like loads of hand motions. She's got big hair. The visual is really jewels. impressive. So I was just looking at her little face on this screen 
And then it, the words just came out of me mouth to fishes around in fannies. And the thing is yeah. that the president who had just stood down, Dr. Greenbirds, was backstage with us online and just burst out laughing. And I was like, oh, shit, if I just said that. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's what I said in it. But it's, I love it's it. It's got to keep it real. It's important. Yeah. It's, a t- it's a taboo subject. Yeah. And, you know, it really, um, it's really important to talk about it, isn't it? It's healthcare professionals, so. Oh, absolutely. We talk about all sorts on these podcasts. We definitely do, yeah. Yeah. Anyone who listens to me in my house whilst we do the podcast, they're just like, can you say that? And I'm like, absolutely. (laughs) And even my son is like, oh, mummy, don't talk about vaginas again or don't talk about sex. And he's he's just like, he's so blasé about it now, but it it does make me laugh that it's still taboo. We need to kind of talk about these things. Do you know, they practice on each other. These physios, they practice internals on each other like like that. <laughs> I'm like, how, you know, like physios, when we used to take on our clothes in front of people, but that's next level doing a vaginal examination on your friend. I've just found this out. You obviously have to be a proper pelvic health expert to start, but that's how the man is. Not, not glad you clarified that. that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you, you for clarifying that. Last part. Video. Because it's not just the wee hole, it's the bum hole they do as well. I'm like, I can't get over this. So when oh, yeah. when Joe was asking you about what your aspirations for the future are, is this what's next then, Rachel? <laughs> Oh, do you know what are my aspirations? Um, so back on track, I am in a great position in my clinical development role with NHS Leadership Academy. Again, the previous post holders were doctors, um, and this is a real moment for us as the others, and I just clump us as the others yeah. because we have the most amazing medics. Um, you know that that really drive our health and care services and we also have amazing others and this is a time where I really want to with the team and this is why I said the whole team are incredible about looking at opportunities to really allow our clinical leaders our next generation clinical leaders to achieve you know board level executive positions and when you think of all the work that's going on in the EDI team like Shireen's team with the health inequalities team with Bola's team and with the recruitment and retention work that's going on and then bringing the leadership um, programs into that is going to be really transformational. And, do you know, this is why HPs, um, I've, I've, this is why I'm still doing a bit of clinical because I'm really struggling just to give it up completely. Yeah. Um, you know, and even at the minute, if that means I'm doing a 40, 50 hour week, that's fine for me until, I, yeah. you know, maybe two or three more years. So for anyone listening to this, you mentioned the word portfolio career. I did not intentionally have a portfolio career. I only recognised I had one when someone said in my last interview and said, when did you start your portfolio career? And I was like, oh, um, what? And I even said, you know, what's that? I don't didn't even know. And um, but there's nothing wrong with developing your portfolio career right now because you never know where it'll take you. And one of the best things I ever done was joining a hospice as a trustee. Yeah. Because that's a board level position. And working in third sector charity is just the most rewarding thing. Obviously it's for free. You do, you're a trustee, but again, if anyone's listening who's looking for those board level opportunities that are outside an NHS provider trust, look for things like that because it'll really give you different skills. It'll, you know, you'll have to learn about finance. You have to learn about governance. You have to learn about risk and audit. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that what's next for me is I really want to share my experiences. I want to help bring people along the way and I want people to do even more and be even better than what I am. Like, that's the truth. There's too many people I've worked with that want to take the glory, they want the glory, they want their name to be in lights. I'm like, have it. Or let's do it together. Do you know what I mean? Let's let's all share the stage. Let's all share the platform. And I think that's one of the things with the podcast we were all involved in. You know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands. I have to do the altimetrics from them. But, you know, it was, it was within the first three months or something, it was like 26 countries that had interacted yeah. with them um, and 
it's just things like that I think that's what we need to we need and then lots of different things have happened as a result of that and I think the diversity networks not because of the work I was doing but alongside it it's given accelerated other people's voices yeah and they're doing their own thing now and they're doing even better things so it means we can step back from some of our stuff because actually you've been the catalyst for someone else and yeah I think it's pushing voices forward that look different that are different it's giving people a platform and I think that's really really powerful in the next generation stuff we're never gonna have if if we get this right for our generation then the next generation comes through and then they keep doing it we're never gonna have these problems in society again are we yeah yeah exactly do you know what Rachel Naaman and I were smiling ecstatically at each other because you epitomised everything that we said before we started the podcast. So Naaman and I had a conversation around what makes a good leader. And uh, we were just talking about the fact that it is someone who develops others, who collaborates, who, who you know, recognises what needs to be done, but also works as a team to kind of enhance services, practitioners. Um, so, yeah, you are a true aspirational leader. So it's lovely to have you on the podcast and amazing to just hear the work that you're doing and we're very lucky to have you um sitting in those roles so thank you oh honestly thank you you are doing amazing stuff I've only listened to a couple but I was blown away honestly and just thank you for all the work you're doing I know how hard it is but it's so important it's so important and hey if anyone's listening that knows some kind of awards that can get these two nominated for in the field (laughs) Start with your own professional circle, then go big. That's what I say. Um, my little brain's ticking now, but thank you. Thank you. We'll make sure we keep checking our emails then. <laughs> yeah, I'm not changing mine now. <laughs> I think we've covered quite a lot of top tips, which is what we normally end with this anyway. But I don't know, Rachel, is there one last thing you want to say to everyone listening? No, my my biggest mantra at the minute is just be you, be your true authentic self. And that's really easy for someone like me to say. But in every circle that you're in, your professional circle, your personal social circle, your social circle, just really be your authentic self. And for those of you that are like me, look around you in your circle do you have diversity in your circle? Does everyone look like you, sound like you, think like you? Do you all agree with each other? That If you do, that's not healthy. You need to diversify your personal life as much as your professional life. And if there's one thing people take away from this chat, it's really maybe just that bit of reflection about yourself. We've talked about your journey, understanding, but just look around you. And I can't take credit for this as a Sadia who is um, chair of the LGBTQI plus physio network. And he's um, a gay man who lived in apartheid South Africa. And he's another of my inspirational role models. So I'd finish on that. Thank you very much, Rachel. I'm sure everyone listening will be very inspired and probably laughing quite a lot um, from what you said earlier. <laughs> I can't wait to see people's reactions. Everyone needs to take selfies when they're listening to it on the tube or on the bus. <laughs> yeah, it would have been great to have videoed you doing your hand movements, to be honest, Rachel, <laughs> on the video right now. It was the hair. <laughs> it was the hair. <clears throat> well, thank you to everyone for listening to Rad Talk. Um, your hosts today have been Naaman and Joe. A huge thank you again to our guest, Rachel Moses. Um, If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions uh, posted along with the podcast, along with the links and resources uh, and any literature discussed within the podcast. To receive your CPD digital badge, please complete the Google form shared alongside the podcast links. So our next guest to feature will be Amy Rylance, who is Head of Improving Care at Prostate Cancer UK. So thanks, everyone, and good night.